0: Today begins the seventh week of studying the Psalms together. Most of the Psalms we've looked at so far have dealt with the challenges and sufferings and the enemies that are outside of us. And uh, today we turn to Psalm 51. And today would be a little bit different than the previous weeks. Uh, it most certainly will not be a, a chipper, fun day because Psalms 51 is pretty serious. It deals with some very complex, very intimate, uh, pretty some scandalous sins. And it's our human nature to kind of minimize the sin that we have and maximize the sins that other people have. Uh, Jesus tells this great illustration of that which it's kind of this Three Stooges sketch comedy, hilarious exaggeration where he says, um, you know, we, we like to take the, the speck of sawdust out of our brother or sister's eye, but we have this big giant beam or four by four log in our own head, and we can't um, see it, but we try to take um, the speck of sawdust out of our brother's eye. It, and it's kind of a, this hilarious Three Stooges, uh, just visually, that's, that's a funny way of looking at things. And, and the reason why Jesus shares that 2,000 years ago is because this is just part of human nature. It's part of us today. We um, tend to look at ourselves in rose-colored glasses while we look at others with a magnifying glass or under the microscope. We minimize our sin, our shortcomings, our failings. We maximize the sins and shortcomings of other people. And we just, as humans, we don't, uh, our default is to not, pay attention to the enemies, the challenges, the struggles, the sin that is inside of us. But Psalm 51 is going to encourage us to do so. Um, we have to answer first the question, what is sin? Sin is not a very politically correct word these days. In fact, I've heard many people uh, argue that it's psychologically damaging to use that word, and and there's this um, really negative religious connotation to the word sin. You know, if I if I were to draw out the word sin, it would be in these like big bold letters, dripping with red blood, and it's this very kind of Halloween-esque word, sin. Uh, what's what's interesting is that the original context for the word sin is not religious at all. It actually comes from The competitive athletic world. It was an archery term. Uh, The word, the 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 original word is hamarta, and the word hamarta just means to miss the mark. And so, when an archer is shooting his arrow at the target and he doesn't hit the bullseye or he misses the target completely, he'd say, "Oh, I sinned. I hamarta. I missed the mark. I didn't score." Um, I, the field goal went wide right. The three-point shot at the buzzer to win the game didn't go in. It's just an athletic competitive term to sin. It's to miss the goal, to miss the mark, to not win the game, to not score. That's all the word sin means. And like I said, whenever we miss the mark, whenever we uh, don't make the, the buzzer-beating Shot whenever our field goal goes wide right in our life, we tend to not want to deal with it. It's a lot easier to stuff that stuff inside and bury it and to draw attention to the shortcomings of other people. Adam and Eve struggled with the same thing in their sin and their rebellion, they ran from God and hid. It's kind of where we get it from in the Genesis account. Uh, God creates. Um, Adam and Eve, and he has this wonderful fellowship with them, and they, they have this thing called righteousness, which simply means right relationship. They have this right relationship with each other. They're on good terms, like the, the, the accounts are settled. They're good. They have righteousness. And then um, God does this thing where he like, comes to them in the cool of the day and like walks with them and hangs out with them. It's really cool. They just go on an evening stroll together. It's awesome. And in between the evening strolls, Adam and Eve, they rebel against God and they sin. They miss the mark. They shoot the arrow. They don't hit the mark. And they realize that they're naked and they become ashamed. So they kind of run into the bushes and they take fig leaves and they fashion um, like coverings or underwear for themselves to hide their nakedness, which is, if you cared, the biblical beginnings of Hanes and Victoria's Secret, which is kind of silly, but they're there. They hear God um, coming. They hear his footsteps to come walk with them in the cool of the day. And they get scared. They don't know what God's going to do because now they don't have righteousness. They have unrighteousness. They're not in a right relationship with God. They're in a broken relationship with God. And they don't know what God's going to do. So they hide. And in Genesis chapter 3 verse 9, God comes to them and asks them this crazy question. He says, Adam, where are you? Now, as a kid, I remember reading this and thinking, why, like, did he lose Adam? Like, there's all, like he's the only dude on the planet. How could you lose Adam? Uh, do you need a GPS tracker for him? Um, and at one point I thought, God, can't you see his naked butt in the bushes over there moving around? Like... Why is God coming to Adam and Eve in Genesis 3, verse 9, saying, where are you? What we know is that that question is not a geographical question. If God could not find Adam and Eve in the garden because they're in you know, like, a, like, like a row of Japanese boxwood bushes hiding, um, by definition, he wouldn't be God if he can't find Adam and Eve. Right? So we know this is not a geographical question that God is asking Adam and Eve. This is a soul question. This is a spiritual question. This is even a relational question. Adam, where are you in relationship to me? There is this incredible amount of grace and invitation. In that question. I mean, that, if there was ever a question that was grace filled, it's this question Where are you? Because God could have come into the garden, guns blazing. It's not that God didn't know what happened, and you could make the argument. Um, that God knew beforehand that it would happen. Because we read that before the foundations of the world, Christ was set apart for to be an atonement for our sins and, and to prepare a way to bring us back t- to God. So, so you can even argue that God knew this would happen. But he doesn't come into the garden guns blazing, saying, I can't believe you did this. I knew this was going to happen, blah, 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 blah. He comes in with a question. Adam, Eve, where Are you? And what I love about that invitation, that opportunity to be honest and to come clean, is that it reveals God's heart towards us who are proficient people in the art of Hamarta. God loves you and me so much that he will not let us sin successfully. Not on his watch. Over and over through the Old Testament and the New Testament, we see this. Uh, Every time Israel wants to come to God and ask for something, the first question that God wants to deal with is first their sin. Always, every time, God wants to deal with Israel's sin before he gets to whatever their issue is. We'll see that when we look at King David today, that God will not let his beloved sin successfully. The same question that God asked Adam and Eve in the garden, where are you, is the same question that God is going to ask King David through the prophet Nathan where are you? It's the same question that he asks you today. Where are you? Same question he asked me. Same question he's asking our country. Same question he's asking Republicans. Same question he's asking Democrats and every party in between. Same question he's asking men. Same question he's asking women. Where are you? Now, David has some incredible responses to this question 3,000 years ago. David answers these questions. And in the Psalms, since we're talking about the Psalms, David has seven Psalms of penitence. That's what they're called. Uh, If you care, it's Psalm 6, 32, 38, 51, 102, 130, and 143. Those seven Psalms by David are collectively called the seven Psalms of penitence penitence, or the the seven psalms of repentance, however you want to phrase it. And of course, Psalms 51 is the most well-known because of the stakes and because of the situation and the controversy and what happened. But you could also read Psalms 32, and I encourage you to read Psalms 32. It's it's, it's, It's the same stuff. So let's turn to Psalms 51. We'll read it. We'll unpack the Context and kind of what it means for us today. Psalms fifty-one, it's page four seventy-four if you're using uh, the same Bible I have. Verse one, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. And these next three verses, 10, 11, and 12, are the key verses of this chapter. And a favorite prayer that I love to pray and encourage you to learn it and pray it as well. Deliver me from blood guiltiness of God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise, for you will not delight in sacrifice for I'd give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. This is the word of the Lord. If you have any church experience, you've recognized some of these phrases. If you come from a liturgical background, you recognize Open my lips, and our mouth will declare your praises. That's often incorporated in the traditional liturgies. Um, several contemporary worship songwriters have sampled from this psalm. There's, uh, I can think of Shane and Shane, and uh, John Foreman, and Chris Tomlin, and and Michael W. Smith. There's just a lot of. Um, worship writers out there who have taken these words that are 3,000 years old, and, and there is a reason why they ring true in us today. Now, many of you know that this is in the context of David's sin with Bathsheba. That's not hidden. And the context here is found in 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12. Or if you want to read 2 Samuel 1 through 12, you can do that. But, but specifically, we're going to unpack chapters 11 and 12 of 2 Samuel. You don't have to turn there. I'm going to just paraphrase it for you. And this is some pretty heavy stuff, I'll admit. Uh, I grew up in church, and, and I was given a pretty, uh, a probably appropriate so, appropriately so, a, a G-rated version of the story. Um, but I remember teaching on this uh, two and a half years ago. I was asked to preach at a uh, Ash Wednesday service at another church, March of 2016, it's when I really began to dig into this on a deep level. I remember uh, just just exposing the text and, uh, and sharing the details and, and just telling the story. And I remember this church filled with people who had been in church their whole life. I mean, 40, 50, 60, 70 years old, some of these people were. And I remember as I was telling the story, I, 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 wasn't, I didn't realize it, but I was saying words I had never said in church before. And I, and I realized after a fact, I was saying words that they had never heard in church before. And they had certainly not heard these words attributed to blessed King David, the man after God's own heart. And there, it was like this deer in the headlights during the whole sermon um, that the people, and I didn't realize until afterwards how just, how thick this stuff was. So a little bit uh, trigger alert, uh, we're going to um, go to some very, very deep and dark places here, um, partially because the scriptures take us there, but also we have a lot to learn in our cultural moment right now of how we as believers in Christ Jesus should think and feel and talk and act in certain ways in regards to certain situations that we see in a world that is just a constant dumpster fire. Second Samuel chapter 11, verse 1, it says that it's springtime and it's time for the kings to go out to battle. And uh, something we're not really familiar with. Our kings don't go out into battle. We hire a secret service uh, to protect our kings. We have like a second Air Force One just to throw anybody off. Uh, like, like we do, we spend a lot of money, put a lot of effort in protecting our quote-unquote king, our leaders. And I think we've learned that. It's probably not great to put the one in charge out in, in harm's way. But in the ancient world, that's what kings would do. It was their responsibility to be out on the battlefield with their men fighting, and they'd often risk their lives, and that, that was just the thing that would happen. And so we, we, we get that clue in 2 Samuel 11. It's springtime, and it's time to go to battle. And, uh, and, and the army goes out, but David stays behind, which is kind of clue number one that something's off. David's not supposed to stay behind, but he stayed behind. And then the story tells us that he's, he goes to his rooftop, and he... Um, sees Bathsheba bathing, and, and, uh, and often the story is told that he, you know, um, that they kind of fall in love. They have this affair, and then uh-oh, she um, gets pregnant, and, and he's got this issue on her hand. But what we, what we know <laughs> is that um, it wasn't quite like that. In fact, if you read, um, if you just read the text of Samuel 11, I, I would just challenge you, please, can you please find me some evidence of of like chocolate or roses or some hint of romance um, or at least a relationship, some, some Sinatra, Italian food pasta. Like I, I see no ingredients of romance in this text. I mean, it does not look like Lady and the Tramp from Disney at all. What we know culturally is that women would bathe around a certain time of the day, as it, as it was a custom, and they would uh, bathe on the rooftop because, you know, there's no plumbing. And, and and just like I know, generally speaking, in terms of 11 to 1, 11 a.m. to 1 p.m., I, I could guess what you're going to be doing during that time. You're going to be having lunch, probably. I could guess in the morning sometime you're going to be in your bathroom brushing your teeth, right? Like we all have these just um these hy- hygienic functions that we do around the same time in the same place, you know, give or take, right? It was like that in the ancient world with bathing. Okay? Mm-hmm. So, w- what you got to know is that David is not taking a day off and he's up on the rooftop, praying, and he's, you know, sipping a latte, catching the sunrise, and then out of the corner of his eye, he accidentally sees this woman bathing, and he falls into lust. No, David knows where women bathe, and what time women bathe. And so the picture in 2 Samuel 11 is a man who's rich and has a lot of privilege and who's in charge. And he abdicates his leadership responsibility as a man of God. He, he, he first refuses to walk in what God has called him to walk in, to love and serve his people sacrificially. He's not doing that. He retreats and then he intentionally and purposefully engages in what you could only call premeditated life pornography. I mean, this is the equivalent of hiding a camera in a hotel room to spy on a woman when she's not aware of it. Like he is masterfully and intentionally getting crafty so that he could see a woman in her privacy without any clothes on. That's what David is doing. He sees her and something within him says, that's mine. I'm entitled to it. I want it. And then in verse four of Second Samuel 11, it says, so David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him and he lay with her. Now, again, the flannel graph I was given in children's church was that they had this romantic affair. And that David was an adulterer. Now, if you want to use Jesus' definition of adultery, which is if you even look at a woman lustfully in your heart, you've committed the sin of adultery, you don't even have to act on it, then yes, David is an adulterer by Jesus' definition. Because he's committing the sin of adultery through lust, okay? Totally. However, that's not the sin here. This is not merely adultery, he doesn't go to work, is a peeping Tom, and then from his place of privilege and position, he sends messengers, or i.e. Two, pe- two of his men, to go to her door, knock on the door, and it says he took her, slept with her, and threw her away. Today, we would call that either Abduction or kidnapping, you pick the word, and rape. I remember two and a half years ago preaching this to another church and saying, King David was a rapist, and I just got like big eyeballs. But I, I don't see any evidence of him being this like romantic guy who's just, you know, Matthew McConaughey, right? Like, no, 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 no. He, this text says he took her. He sent messengers to grab her, and he took her. Then he throws her away, sends her back. This, by a man we call a man after God's own heart. Things get a little bit trickier. She gets pregnant. So David's like, I got to get crafty again. So he arranges for her husband, who's one of his men, Uriah, who's out in battle doing what he's called to do. Arranges for him to come home on leave, thinking that if Uriah comes home, you know, then um, people can, can like put the timing together and go, oh, like because he got home and she got pregnant and they'll attribute this child to Uriah and that'll, that'll separate David. But Uriah does this incredible unselfish thing and he, he has such loyalty and respect for his men that he, that he refuses to go home to Bathsheba and he sleeps on David's doorstep. Like he will not go home. He was just a great man. And so now David's got a, 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 another problem. So David sends Uriah back out to battle, and he arranges um, for Uriah to, to go to the front lines, and then they pull, they support, and basically leave Uriah out stranded on, on an island, and they engineer him to be killed in the heat of battle, making it look like an accident. And David succeeds in conspiring for the murder of Uriah. Bathsheba is now in a pretty tough place. David takes her in. They get married. They have a kid. And I'm sure from the outside, everyone thinks, oh, how wonderful David is. Uh, You know, one of his men died in battle, and he said, I'll take care of his wife. And he brings Bathsheba in, and and now she's uh, a queen, and now they've got, now she's part of royalty. And oh, I mean, that's sad about Uriah, but what a great chapter. Now she's a part of the palace and she's royalty. I'm sure that was the story some of the people had. But the reality is pretty different. David was not leaning into the calling that God had called him to be as a man. He's a peeping Tom. He engaged in premeditated live pornography. He conspired for an abduction. He raped the woman and then he conspired to murder her husband to cover it up because he got her pregnant. Now the last part of this is pretty sad because David got away with it. I mean, for at least a year, nobody really knew or at least those who were close to him didn't say anything or for whatever reasons, the systemic nature of how this thing was set up. I mean, honestly, if you even knew about it, if you were one of the messengers or if you were part of the army and you knew the real story, uh, you've seen David act. He killed a giant with a stone. He was a teenager. Uh, Like, you're really going to raise your hand and say, I think you're in sin, king. Uh, Like, no one is really motivated to tell the emperor that he doesn't have any clothes on. So there's also this systemic sin that's going on in that the king is out of control and there is really no way to deal with it because you're probably going to die just like Uriah. And David seemingly succeeds in abusing his privilege, in his lust, in his kidnapping, in his rape. In his murder cover up. It seems like David is successful in his sin. But that's not the end of the story. The very last verse of chapter 11 of 2 Samuel says, But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Next verse, chapter 12 verse 1 says, And the Lord sent Nathan to David. What a job Nathan had. Nathan is a prophet. And, you know, the prophet is someone who lends their voice to God, basically. And so, uh, can you imagine if you're, D- you're Nathan? And God says, hey, Nathan, I got an errand for you to do today. And you're like, all right, Lord, I can't wait to work for you. Do you need me to go to the post office? Do you need stamps? What do you need me to do? And and God says, Nathan, I need you to go to David. I need you to, to confront him on him being a, a, a someone who's abused their privilege, a peeping Tom, a kidnapper, a rapist, and a murderer. Um, you sure you don't need stamps from the post office? I mean, like, Nathan for sure has to think, if I go to the king, if I go to the palace, and I confront the the man in charge with these heinous sins, which any one of them would be awful, but all five or six of them combined are awful. What do you think Nathan's thinking? He's thinking, knowing what happened to Uriah, there's a good chance Nathan sleeps with the fishes after this conversation. There's a good chance he's um, next to the body of Uriah six feet under. This is essentially like a suicide mission that God is asking Nathan to go on. But, but this is how serious God takes the sin, the hamarta, the missing of the mark that David has done. God's not cool with it. It would be the equivalent of like, um, some like random pastor. God saying, "I want you to go to the White House and start confronting people on their sin." Like you think it's going to go well. I know none of you can imagine that that would even need to happen. But but just try your, <laughs> just try. Okay. Nathan goes to David, and he's smart. He's wise. He uses this parable to um, to confront. He didn't just walk in guns blazing. He comes to the king, and he tells them this parable. But what's interesting about this parable is that it's not a parable in the context of sexual sin, which is what I would have done. But it's, the, it's in the context of the rich abusing the poor, the rich abusing their privilege and their position and their wealth, is the story that Nathan tells David. And he t- essentially tells him about this man who, who's abusing um, this poor man and, and, and is um, kind of abusing the, the 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 lone lamb that this poor man has, and 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 the story enrages David, and and David gets so fired up about the injustice in this story about the rich abusing their their position and privilege and wealth over the poor um, for for just like uh, self indulgence reasons. Um, that David kind of stands up and he says, "Um, justice must be brought to this man. Um, Whatever was lost must be restored fourfold. Something has to be done to this man. Just enraged at the story. And Nathan stands there and points at David and he says, David, you the man. You, You are the man. That's what the text says. You are the man. And he's, he's trapped David. And essentially, what God is doing through Nathan is the same thing God did with Adam and Eve, is he's saying, David, you're hiding, you're in the bushes, you've manufactured all these stupid things to cover up your sin, and it's not working. I can see your naked butt in the bushes. David, where are you? That's the question Nathan is essentially asking David. Now we're reading stories like, "What's going to happen? Like, what is David going to do? I mean, he's got probably at least three options. One, he can deny it all. Two, he can admit it and then just kill Nathan and add him to the to the toll. Or three, he can confess his sin, repent, make a U-turn, change his mind, and come clean, come honest." And that's what David does. He admits what has happened, does business with the Lord. And at the very end of the story, Nathan comes to David and he says, you are forgiven. The Lord has had mercy on you. However, there's going to be some consequences. And what we know about the story of David is that his family was jacked from there on. His kingdom was jacked from there on. There was constant division and heartache because of this. And while David was forgiven and redeemed and restored, he still had to suffer the earthly consequences in his family and in his career. Just because David was a man in charge didn't mean he got a free pass for his sin. Yes, he was forgiven, but also there were real consequences in his family and and in his career that he was going to have to reckon with. Psalms 51 is the response to all of that. Now, here's what it means for us today. We live, for the last 11 months, we live in a me too world. And this might be a trigger for some of you. And um unfortunately, um, this issue of sexual harassment and sexual abuse and rape and all this stuff, mostly done by by men in positions of power and privilege. and it's not just done to women but but largely like ninety over ninety percent are reported women it, it's become heavily uh politicized and um, and for many reasons, it's, it's very difficult to, to talk about this stuff. For many reasons, we're now at a point in our culture where women are feeling free to come forward and to be honest about the things that have happened to them. And it's, for many men, it's surprising, it's upsetting, it's disorienting. And listen it should be. If when you see this stuff on the news or you watch the Supreme Court hearings or, or any of that stuff and you're filled with these like crazy emotions and anger and frustration and deep sadness and grief and mourning and, and like a sickness in your stomach or confusion and all that, just, just listen. that's okay because that's how bad this stuff is. it' should cause anger. Now, the question is, why are you angry? That's really the question, but but this should disorient us because this is not how God has designed life to work. And so when we see in our culture and in, in our, in our uh, business world and in our homes and churches and neighborhoods and even in the political system where we see massive systemic cultural sin running rampant and, and, and it's like coming out of the bushes and we're seeing the depth and the breadth of how awful things are, yes, it should be disorienting because that's how serious the hamarta, the sin is. I remember last November, I was um, out of town. I was at a conference, and I was staying with my best friend. And the next morning, I woke up, and I saw the news that Matt, of the Matt Lauer stuff that had come out. And then I think the next day, it was like John Lasseter from Pixar. And it was just one after another. And I, I remember, like, okay, Weinstein, yeah, that's not a surprise. Louis C.K., yeah, he's a sleazebag. That's not a surprise. But then you get, like, Matt Lauer, who's supposed to be America's Gentleman. And then, and then, you know, there's lots of stuff that, that comes out. And, and I remember being just, like, shocked. And uh, I think the next week I was talking to some of the ladies in the church. I don't remember if it was Yvonne or Catherine or it was someone like that. And, and, and I was just like, oh, my goodness, I can't, I like, I can't get my head. Like, it's just every day there's a new high-profile rich white male who... Is just this abusive pervert. Like, I'm I'm shocked. And and then I was shocked that they weren't shocked. And uh and one of them said to me, and 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 I man, by by God's grace, I hope this is true. One of them said to me, Drew, like, yeah, you're you're shocked, but but that's because you don't look at women or treat women women or use your position the way most men do, which I hope is true, praise you, I think it's true, but, and, and, and it was this, like, like hey, like, you don't know what's out there, and admittedly, I don't, admittedly, I, I don't, I don't sit back and think, man, I wonder how many women were sexually harassed this week in my church, I, I don't meet a woman um, or even a guy in a church that man and go, man, I wonder if they were raped Recently, I, I like I don't ever think through those terms. Uh, praise God, but 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 still, uh, like so when this stuff happens, I'm just shocked. And and, and I know um, that for conservatives and, and and for for Republicans that that the, when these social movements arise up. Uh, Typically, uh, the left, for many reasons, uh, one of which they're pretty long on empathy, um, th- th- they tend to gravitate to to movements like Black Lives Matter or Me Too or things like that. And, um, and, and the, re- the Republicans or conservatives seem to be on the other side of it. And, and so what I've noticed is that um, those who are... Um, like, really conservative, um, e- even if they're, like, you know, Bible-believing uh, Christians, um, what I've seen is that for some reason, well, like, there's been this, like, uh, maybe, uh, I don't know, like, this disdain or this, we're going to discredit or denounce or deny, or just deny, uh, like, the credibility that's come up from hashtag me too. But what what I'd say, one of the things that I'm grateful for from um, the, the Me Too movement. I and mean, like, I don't know a ton of stuff about it. Um, I'm not like this Me Too advocate, but I think just as a pastor, stepping back, not um, being really partisan and not getting into the weeds of the agenda and the motives and, and all the political moves, just just from far away, the thing I love about the Me Too movement is um, just as God um, came to Adam and Eve and said, where are you? Just as God Asked Nathan to go to King David and say, where are you? I think that it is God's grace through social media, basically outsourcing that question to every woman. And every time someone posts hashtag me too, what I see is the grace of God saying, men, America, where are you? Now, some see political agendas. I don't see that. I just see this massive, persistent, continual come out of the bushes and be honest. I'm grateful for the millions of women who have finally felt bold and courageous and strong and protected enough that they could stand up and publicly drag this nonsense, this evil, this nasty sin out into the light and force our society, our government, our Supreme Court, all men to come to a place of repentance from the sin and the evil that it is. Now, here's some stats, some numbers, will shock you. One in five women and one in 71 men will be raped at some point in their lives. That's 20% of women. In the United States, one in three women, or 33%, one in six men will experience some form of contact sexual violence in their lifetime. That's 33% of women. I have three sisters, so statistically that means one of my sisters has or will experience some form of contact sexual violence in in um, however far on the spectrum that goes. The lifetime cost of a rape victim, the lifetime cost of rape for the victim is $122,461. That's how much, over a lifetime, the, the victim of uh, the sexual assault, or, or whatever you want to call it, will have to pay out of their pocket to deal with the consequences of someone else's sin. 122000 You can buy a house with that money. Annually, rape costs the United States more than any other crime, $127 billion dollars followed by assault, $93 billion, murder, $71 billion, and drunk driving, including fatalities, $61 billion. So what you should know about that is annually, every year, just the United States, every 12 months, America pays $127 billion to deal with this sin that's been hiding in the bushes. And it is more than double what we pay in association to drunk driving. It cost us $61 billion to deal with drunk driving. It cost us $127 billion every 12 months to deal with primarily and overwhelmingly men who look at either a woman or, in some lower cases, other men and say, that's mine, I deserve it, I'm going to take it. But it's not... How God has designed relationships or sex to work. It is, by definition, evil and a product and export from the kingdom of hell. It is not God's way. Some more stats ages 12 to 34 are the highest risk years for rape and sexual assault, over 54% that are reported come from ages 12 to 34, 94% of women who are raped experience PTSD, 33% 33 of women who are raped contemplate suicide, 13% of women who are raped attempt suicide. The stats don't lie, data doesn't lie, and realistically, these numbers are conservative because we all can imagine how difficult it is for a woman or a man to stand up and say, someone violated me sexually. And I think even the numbers for men are probably very conservative. Now, just in case those are out there, impersonal, ethereal statistic numbers, if you translate those stats to our church, and I know some of your stories, and I with full confidence can say, I don't think it's a far stretch to translate those statistical numbers in our church. We have 130 people that call Gathering Midtown their home. That's 130 people that we know their first and last name, their address, their email address, and their phone number who have said, I'm not just kicking the tires. I'm here. This is home. You're my pastor. We have 130 people. 59 of those 130 are adult women. Um, and I'm not even going to include the nine baby girls that we have that are age you know, six and under. My heart can't bear to include them in this. But, but if I included um, those nine, that would be uh, 68 women that are in our church, if you include those. But I'm just going to go adult, 59 adult women. That means statistically there are 20 women in our church that have already or will experience some form of sexual violence in their life. 20. And that means that there are 12 women in our church who will be raped Some point in their life, if they haven't already. 12. It's unfortunate that this issue has become so politically charged. I I remember, um, I mean, God has been um, speaking to me on this issue for two and a half years. I can show you a document that's time stamped March of 2016, where I begin to write out these. These statements in July of this year, I felt the Lord um, kind of call us to um, to to look at Psalms 51. In August, I, we scheduled it for this day. In September, we printed a um, like a 16-page uh, color devotional guide that had all the weeks and all the. All, you know, all the dates and all the topics and everything. And, and so as, as late as mid-September, this has been scheduled for this day. And I had really no clue why, but I just felt strongly like I have to do Psalms 51 and let's do it at the end of October. And I don't really know why, but I just feel like that's what the Lord is doing. And, and, I, and we printed those. We printed 150 of those devotional guides and they're all gone. Praise God. And then our culture caught fire with the Supreme Court nominations. And as that began to unfold on TV, and as I began to hear men and women in our church and outside of our church talk about this, I slowly began to realize what the Lord has been doing in my heart over the last two and a half years on this issue, and why He had really led me in July, August, and September to put Psalms 51 on this day. I went back and read some of my notes from March of 2016, and it is if, it it looks as if I wrote that stuff in real time during the Kavanaugh Ford hearings. What is awful is that if there is one organization, that is equipped with things like grace and mercy and forgiveness and the power of the love of Jesus and the good news of great joy that Christ took all of our sin on the cross and he canceled it. And we have this secret weapon called the Holy Spirit that gives us boldness and fuel and guidance and, 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 and anointing for ministry in a in a dark and hurting world, if there is one organization that should be equipped and poised to handle with the deep issues of of this sin and even things like um, racism or immigration or or how women are treated, I mean, you could pick a ton of them. But I'm just talking about just for, for this purpose, this sin, if there's one organization, it should be the church. But honestly, I I don't know if many of us know how to rise above the nonsense that comes from the left and the right to talk about it. In fact, when the Supreme Court hearings were going on, I did not encounter one conservative, which I'm one. I didn't find one conservative who could talk about what was going on with grace and with empathy and with compassion towards the millions of women and men who are being emotionally affected by the life circus on TV. 100% of them immediately went to, can't believe Nancy Pelosi held to that letter, their agenda, this, this, this. And it was all about the sin of the Democrats which I'm not saying they're innocent, but I did not find one conservative who said, this is how women are being treated. This is not okay. And if there is a swath of people who have a conviction for holiness and sexual purity in the sanctity of human life, it should be the conservatives. Now, if that makes you angry or stirs you up, may I just suggest before you go guns blazing on someone else, perhaps that might be a giant warning sign that the Lord desires to do a deep work of healing and repentance in your heart on some issues, I want to give some encouragement to women, and then some encouragement to men, and then we'll close. Um, ladies, we hear you. We honor you. We respect you. Because you carry a piece of the divine image of God. He created them male and female in his image, and you carry a piece of the image of God. Therefore, we honor you, we love you, we respect you. You're not lesser than. It, it should be, like, I feel silly even saying, like it should be obvious, but yet, Sexual harassment, catcalling, groping, st- looking, l- l- lustful thoughts, lustful gazes, um, uh, sexual violence, like, like rape. All that. Of course it's evil. <laughs> of course it's sin. I, I feel silly even having to say that it is. But, but we believe that stuff is awful and is not from the will of God. And um, we want to continue to learn as Christians to be graceful towards one another, to honor one another. As Paul says, in the eyes of God, there is no male or female, there is no Jew or Gentile, there is no slave or free. We are all one in the eyes of God. In the last year, or even in the last month, there's been a lot of things that have been brought to the surface because of cultural events and events. And we are by no stretch experts in this, but we do care. And we um, want to be people, we want to be resources of healing and restoration for you you if this is uh, a challenge in your life. Um, Someone recently told me that um, our church is one of their safe places, and that was one of the greatest compliments that I could have ever heard is that our church has become, by God's grace and by God's power, a safe place in society to come. It has certainly been our desire for the last seven years is is that this would be a safe outpost of the kingdom of heaven in the midst of a dark and dumpster fire world. And so um, I want you to know, ladies, that, that we're committed to that. And if there is ever a time where you feel unsafe, if there's ever a time where you feel that someone is looking at you too much or in the wrong way or is touching you or is too huggy or is saying things, I want you to know you have um, the freedom to come to me, to Jake, to any of our leaders and share that with us. And we will not um, brush that under the rug. We do not take that stuff lightly. We will not um, make you feel bad. Um, I take that very seriously, and whether it's liked or not, I'm always going to side on the side of women. Um, I don't know if that's because that's godly. It's just because I have three sisters, and I will always side on the side of my three sisters. And that guys may not like that. Sorry, that's just what we're. That's what we do. Okay. And so if there's ever a guy who makes you feel uncomfortable, um, please don't even hesitate. Um, I take that seriously. That's a huge responsibility and, and not on my watch. Like I don't want any of that stuff to happen on my watch. So please, please feel the freedom to come and to share that with us if, um, if, if it's going on. Uh, a, a brief story about this is a couple, maybe two years ago. Um, within two days, five women came to me, all without talking to each other, and they all told me the same story about the same man in their church and how they felt unsafe. And so I had to call this man into my office. He's an older man, and uh, he asked if his wife would come. And I was like, "Well, if you want her to come, and he didn't really know what what we were going to be talking about." And his wife showed up, and they sat on my couch, and I had to confront him with these five. Um, accusations that young women in our church had said of him, he immediately denied it and said that was all wrong and, and, and even tried to put it on some of the women that it was their fault that they were doing that to him, which is complete nonsense. And I said, well, I'm sorry, sir. That's You can deny that. I'm just telling you, um, I'm going to side with the 20- and 30-year-old single women in our church. And so I'm not, I'm not asking you to leave. I'm telling you, you're not allowed to worship with us anymore. And if you show up, we will call the police. And if we have to file a restraining order, we will do so. Um, there are 4,000 other churches you can worship in. Ours is not one of them. He looks at his wife, <laughs> just a day in my, just a, you know, one of the things on my to-do list, and his wife, uh, and he asks his wife, honey, what do you think? And she looks him in the eye and she says, honey, Pastor Drew is right. And I agree with him. And I've seen what he's talking about. And I've tried to talk to you about it, but you won't listen. And you always get defensive. He stands up, storms out of my office. She comes to me, hugs me, and whispers in my ear with tears in her eyes. She says, thank you. It's like the hardest thing I've ever had to do as a pastor. Tell a man next to his wife, you're a pervert and you can't be here anymore. The next day or the following days, his son calls me and his son says, Drew, my dad's been doing that for his whole life in our church, in our in churches we've been a part of. And you're the first pastor that had the guts to stand up to him and tell him no. And I just I know I just want you to know I know that was hard. And I want you to know you did the right thing and that I, as his son, appreciate you doing the right thing. Okay, all right. Um, ladies, that stuff ain't happening on my watch. As far as I can tell, if it's up to me, we, we will have whatever difficult conversations needs to happen. I know that we've got a lot of young people and there's a lot of attractive young single women in our church. And um, I know church is a great place to meet, to meet a spouse. That's great. But, but listen, dudes, if you're coming here, for the sole purpose of hunting, um, you're not welcome. And you, there's, they have bars for that stuff. Do not come into the sacred house of the Lord to fulfill your sexual lust. We will not tolerate it or put up with it. I can see it a mile away. And I have no problem following restraining orders if we have to. This will be a safe place for all people, but it will not be a safe place for sexual predators. We take that very seriously. So women, we hope that you're encouraged with that. Men, um, I want to ask you to do two things, and, and simply just to join me in doing these two things. I recognize this is hard to hear. This is hard to come to groups with because um, I think if you're just a godly man, uh, you, you don't think this way, you, 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 at least, or at least you don't want to, okay? And so um, there's two things that I have learned in the last several months to do and that have, has, is beginning to bear lots of fruit. The first thing I want to ask you to do as a man is to take on the posture of a humble student before being an arrogant critic. What we need more than anything is humble Listening men who are curious and who are students, not arrogant critics who are fixers. It's just not helpful. Learn to ask questions. Learn to be inquisitive and curious. If it helps you, imagine that God has called you to be Sherlock Holmes and be a detective and buy a little notebook and take notes and and try to do it that way. But listen, you need to recognize that if you're a man you live in a different world than women do. You have a complete different set of expectations and biases and opportunities and benefits of the doubt. And if you're a white man, doubly so. And I'll say that to throw guilt on anyone. I just say, like, listen, I, as a white man, I live in a very different world than a black woman or a Hispanic woman. I, just very different. We, we live in different worlds. And you need to understand that. The second thing I want to ask you to do is to be sensitive and attentive to the women in your life. You have probably a mother, sister, auntie, cousin, a wife. You have sisters in Christ in the church. You have women all around you. And it would be helpful if you were just attentive and led by the Spirit and sensitive to those women. I was talking to a young woman in our church the other day. And she was sharing um, kind of her pain with everything and and, and was talking about how difficult watching the hearings were and all this stuff. And then she said, but the most hurtful thing out of all that was not things our president said, is not things that happened with the Supreme Court, um, is not um, how our government acted. Um, the most hurtful thing was that her dad hasn't even called to ask her how she's doing. And well, listen... If you're, um, if you're a man, you, you probably have women around in your life, and, and and I know, like we're clunky emotionally, and so like my default is, I man, I don't want to ask these questions because I don't want to stir up emotions, and I don't want to make them uncomfortable, and I just kind of want to be, you know, just like you know, sacred and quiet. And and um, w- what I have learned, especially in the last month, is that most of the time, women tend to interpret that. As we don't care, and 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 that they actually want to be engaged with, they want to be um, listened to, they want to be heard and understood. They don't want you to fix it. They just want you to listen to them, and they want to feel equal with you. And I know that that's hard. That's why we have the power of the Holy Spirit available. Now, well, practically, that doesn't mean like start asking all the women in your life if they were raped. Don't do that. You can just simply say, hey, have you been the last month with, with, the, with, with the, um, the Kavanaugh-Ford stuff? How, how, what do you think the last year with the Me Too movement? What are your thoughts on that? I mean, there are ways, you're smart, guys. There are ways you can ask appropriate questions that will lead to some deep, graceful conversations that can only happen with the love of Christ and the leading and power of the Holy Spirit. And I, I again, I, I, I know there's some relationships that aren't on that level yet, and there's some relationships where um, there's just a, a depth of brokenness and, and a lack of wholeness, and so that can't happen, but there, if you have healthy and mature relationships Um, you should be able to begin having those conversations. And so one, take on the posture of a humble student, and two, be sensitive and attentive to the women in your life. Back to Psalms 51, David asks for three things. And you really, I don't even, it's such a great psalm, I don't even need to preach it. There's just three things David asks. The first seven verses, David says, cleanse me. Verses eight to 12, he says, restore me. Verses 13 and 19, he says, use me. Cleanse me, restore me, use me. It is only by the power of the blood of Christ shed on the cross 2,000 years ago that we can be clean. There is nothing you can do to make God love you more and the gospel is that there's nothing you can do to make God love you less. Just like King David being a, a rapist and a murderer and a, and a kidnapper didn't make God love him less, there is Nothing you could ever do to make God run from you. That is the good news. it Just as he asked Adam, where are you? As he asked King David, where are you? He's asking you today, where are you? Come clean. I mean, AA gets this right. The first step to recovery is admitting you've got a problem. Come clean. Ask God to restore you. What I love about God, he's not a punitive God. We see this in the garden. He doesn't walk in guns blazing. He walks in with a redemption and restoration on his mind. Now, now here's like the crazy thing. Like a lot of us saw the stuff with Michigan State and the Olympic gymnastics program and Larry Nassar, and it's all disgusting and gross. And I think the only word to describe Larry Nassar is a monster. But here's the deal. God died for him too. While Larry was still a sinner, Christ died on the cross. And that it is God's desire to bring forgiveness and to bring a a restoration of life to that man. Quite honestly, I don't want that. I would not vote for that. Lock him up, put him in a prison, let him burn in hell. That's my disposition towards that guy. Listen. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And God is not punitive; He's redemptive. Yeah, Larry has a lot of consequences, and he's probably should probably not ever get out of prison. He shouldn't get out of prison. <sighs> but honestly, I missed the mark too. Not on that level. I'm a sinner too, and I need God's cleansing. I need his restoration. You do too. So the invitation for today is to come out of the bushes, to put the fig leaves down, to repent, and to turn to God. And what you will find, you'll be delighted to know that God is turning to you and mercy. Now we're going to close by praying this psalm. I'm going to ask you to um, take on a position of humility. If you're able physically, I'm going to ask you to kneel. Um, if you can't kneel, like lean forward and bow your head or you know, fold your hands. To just take on a physical posture of humility. And the reason why we do that is because there's this like, spiritual trick that the spirit often follows the body. Um, it's easier to be humble when you're kneeling than when you're standing. Um, it's hard to be arrogant and proud when you're kneeling down, okay? So, so like when you lift your hands and surrender, it's hard to be arrogant when your hands are raised, okay? Um, you know, it's easier to be reverent and respectful when you're, heads bowed and eyes are closed. That's just the trick there. So I want to ask you to um, kind of accelerate that process by, by getting on your knees. And we're going to walk through a series of confessions as individuals. We're going to have some time where we just as individuals look at ourselves, our sin. We confess those things. We ask for forgiveness. And we'll do that as a church, as a body of believers. We'll do that on a corporate level, which is so profound and powerful. And then finally, we will do that on behalf of our nation We'll pray and confess the sins of our country and of our political system and of the left, of the right. And then we'll also pray for the millions of men and women who have been on the underside of this bad situation and ask for God's help, for God's comfort, for God's forgiveness and his deliverance for his peace. Let us pray.